If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to join me in Daniel chapter 1. That's in the Old Testament. Daniel is an exceptional book. I think most people are aware that in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. And we read the book of Exodus, which is their exodus from that situation. Many even are aware that the children of Israel were in bondage in Babylon. And there are some accounts within Scripture that give us insight into what life in bondage was like, and Daniel is one of those accounts. We get inside views into what life was like for the children of Israel in Babylon. And I want to begin reading here in a moment in Daniel chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 1, but I want to communicate to you from the onset That in my mind, this passage of Scripture, though it is certainly ancient by almost all definitions, contains within it timeless, relevant principles. The battle that will be defined by Daniel, the one that he was engaged in and faced, and how he was victorious in it, is exactly mirroring the battle that we are engaged in, and thus outlines for us how we can be victorious. In the New Testament, in Peter's letter, there is an interesting word that is used. It's seemingly strange. Peter is writing his letter in the New Testament, and he's writing to a group of people that he defines in 1 Peter 1.1 as this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered. And then he lists some geographical locations that these Christians under persecution from Rome, have scattered to. He is aware that he's writing to a group of people who have every reason to doubt in the God in which they have believed. They are now immersed in strange cultures. They are confronting new temptations and they are engaged in new battles. And as he attempts to coach them through, he helps them by saying this in 1 Peter 2.11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. You don't think that fits within Scripture, strangers and pilgrims. He doesn't mean strange in the sense that they are weird, and he doesn't mean pilgrim in the kind that we historically acknowledge, but as one commentator wrote, he means pilgrims in this way. One who has no permanent home on earth. One whose citizenship is not here, merely sojourning, passing on to our eternal home in the heavens. Therefore, act as a sojourner and as a traveler. One of the coaching points that Peter used to encourage this scattered group of believers was to develop and live with the mindset that this world is not your home. You are a stranger. You are a pilgrim on a pilgrimage. You are not here for keeps, but yet you are working here for now for your eternal home. He doesn't withdraw us from the culture of our day, but rather he helps us to maintain a dual identity. And that's a tricky thing. Maintaining a dual identity with the way I define it with a biblical balance. This world is not our home, but we are in this world. 
When Jesus is praying in John chapter 17 for us as believers, he prays this way. I am not asking you, God, to take the believers out of the world, but I am asking that you protect them while they are in the world. Jesus, in teaching, said to his disciples, you are not of this world, but you are in this world. Meaning that we have to maintain a dual identity. If we are going to successfully navigate life in a God-honoring way, we must live with the awareness that this world is not our home. We maintain a dual identity with a biblical balance, and Daniel's going to help us with that greatly. In Daniel 1, I'll begin reading in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, the verses are here on the screen. We're going to learn how Daniel stood against that same cultural tide of his day. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, little g. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now let's just pause for a second and historically establish what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar marches with the Chaldean army on Jerusalem and Judah. And the Bible says something. It is an interesting phrase that God gave King Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean army. What that indicates to us is that God was judging the overt sin of his people, their breaking of his law, and their rejection of his mandates by sending them into bondage. This was prophesied. And when Nebuchadnezzar is there and besieges Jerusalem, and Jerusalem capitulates in defeat, Nebuchadnezzar spoils the temple of God. He goes in and he takes those holy vessels from the temple of God, the God of heaven, and he transports them back to the land of Shinar, back to Babylon, and he places those holy vessels into the house of his God, little g. He puts them into the treasury store of his God. This is utter and complete defeat for Israel. This is defaming the one true God. Now we'll pick up in verse 3. And the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Now here's the kind that he wants. Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge and understanding science. So that cuts out most of the kids that I know, understanding science. And such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach, get this, the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed unto them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now you might say, I don't know who those four are. Other than Daniel, I've never heard the name of those other three. And verse 7 tells us why that may be. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. 
Immediately in Daniel chapter 1, we become aware that Daniel is under intense pressure. It is every moment of his existence to deal with the reality that he must compromise his beliefs in the God of Israel and accept life in Babylon. In all honesty, this is no different than the day and age in which we live and the struggle we are engaged in and the battle that we face. There has always been pressure on God's people to compromise their holiness and there always will be. In verse 3, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar says to Ashpenaz, I want you to take a select group of young people. I want you to get the best of the best. And history would tell us that he took about 60 young people and they were between the ages of 13 and 17, give or take. I want you to get the best of the best and I want to take them back to Babylon and I want to train them in the learning and in the tongue of the Chaldeans. Now, they need to already have some innate ability, but we're going to raise up a special group of people, and after three years' time, we're going to feed them in our way, we're going to teach them our way, we're going to do everything we can to make them one of us, and after three years, they'll be able to stand in my presence. Immediately, the pagan royal court applies pressure. And I want you to grasp this as a reality as well. Coming into Babylon as a child who grew up in Jerusalem, it must have been sensory overload. Walking into one of the historical wonders of the world. And if ever there was a time for the seed of doubt to be planted in a young person's heart, this would be it. Because they have been raised to believe that the God of heaven is all-powerful and that he is in control. And now they find themselves defeated and in bondage. Certainly, they must have been questioning in their minds whether or not God was who they had been taught he was. And now you walk into Babylon, one of the wonders of the world, and you are overwhelmed by everything that you see. You are inundated with opulence and wealth and you are pressed into the royal banquet hall seated in what must have been a spectacular show around Nebuchadnezzar. They were dumped, much like Peter wrote about, as strangers into the midst of a strange land and the pressure is put on them. And it is here that I find timeless principles, and it is here that I find a mirroring to the day and age in which we live. The pressure they were under is this way. Number one, they were pressured to think according to the culture that they lived in. In verse 4, I've already referenced that phrase, they were to be involved with the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. They were taught the world view of Babylon. They were taught a view of humanity through Chaldean eyes. They were taught to view God not as one God, but pluralistically as many gods. They were taught the Chaldean view on sin and the Chaldean view on redemption. They were taught everything in the Chaldean way. And the teachers that they had were not run-of-the-mill individuals. These were magicians and sorcerers. These were elite teachers of philosophy and astrology and science. And their goal was quite simple. To take these backwards, one-God-believing Hebrew children, 
and turn them into good upstanding Babylonians. To take them from believing in one true God to accepting many gods and believing in this pagan worship. In effect, what they were trying to do was to erase from their data banks God in heaven and to implement all kinds of new data in there. That was their goal. They had to resist, did Daniel and the three Hebrew children, pressure to adapt their thinking. We deal with the exact same pressure, do we not? To accept the pressure to think like the culture in which we live, but not only were they pressed to think like the culture in which they live, they were pressed to worship like the culture in which they dwell. I want to point something out. And it seems mundane when we first read it. And I referenced it, I emphasized it as I was going through the scripture. We read their names. In fact, in verse 6, we learn that taken from Israel, as some of those special elect children, were these four, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the prince of the eunuchs, is now working with them, and as they come in before him, and he's assessing their intellect, and he's assessing their ability, he begins to immerse them in Chaldean culture by changing their names. And it seems like a small thing, but he gives them the name of Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you are a student of the Bible, sometimes even a surface student of the Bible, you are aware that names tell a story. Hebrew names in particular convey some truth about the individual in which we are studying. And it is no different here. And a man much smarter than me unearthed the meanings of their names. And in it, it indicates the removal of God from their lives. Get it in this way. Daniel. When Daniel was born and he was given the name Daniel, Daniel meant God is my judge. But as he stands before the prince of the eunuchs, he is given the name Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar indicates this. Babylon's chief deity was the god Bel. And the latter part of that name means either prince or maybe protected. Why? Anything is this. He is now prince of the god little g, Bel. Daniel, God is my judge, to prince of the pagan god, Bel. You continue on, Hananiah, when he was born, was given that name, and it meant God is gracious. But his name is changed to Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god. Mishael's name means who is like God. It is a question. It is demanding that we understand no one is like God. His name is changed to Meshach, which means who is like Venus. Who is like the goddess of sensual love? Azariah's name meant the Lord is my helper. His name is changed to Abednego. I worship Nego, the god of wisdom. Now it may seem like an insignificant thing and it may seem like it takes effort to dig in and understand that, but I want you to grasp the intense Pressure these young people are under. Pressure to think like the culture in which they dwell. To adopt their worldview. To adopt their view on God, on humanity, on sin, on redemption. To worship like the culture in which they live. To reject the one true God. To have Him erased and eliminated from your lives, and pressed into worshiping these pagan gods. I note this as well. By the time we get to verse 5, they were pressured to live according to the culture in which they dwelt. 
It seems like a little thing again, and I referenced this two weeks ago. The king, in verse 5, appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now again, sometimes the humanity for us is stripped out of the Bible. And the potency of Scripture ebbs away in our familiarity with the story. But this is an amazing scene, though the words are few. Daniel and and these three Hebrew children are placed into Nebuchadnezzar's royal banquet hall. It is a stunning scene. Yet again, opulence. It is literally a feast fit for one of the greatest historical kings that we know about. It was a scene. It was overwhelming in all senses. Set before them were dishes that they had never before seen. I have no doubt in my mind, placed before them was meat that they could not, according to Mosaic law, ingest without going against the mandates of God. He is placing before them wine. This would not have been cheap wine. This would have been the finest that money could purchase. And the money was endless. And I know, according to history, that the wine that Nebuchadnezzar offered at his banquet table had already been offered to a pagan god. And so to participate at the banquet feast by ingesting the food and drinking the wine would have been equal to worshiping the false god. And Daniel, and we're familiar with the story, steps up and says to the caretaker, listen, we cannot eat the king's meat. Now this is not Daniel putting a show on. This is not Daniel with a chip on his shoulder. This is Daniel being guided by biblical convictions. This is Daniel living life wanting to honor God. And so he says to their caretaker, we cannot eat the king's meat, but here's what we can do. If you will feed us pulse, and how many of you think that sounds good? I say, what does it mean, pastor? We don't really need to study that out. It just doesn't sound good. Pulse. We'll eat pulse, and you measure at the end of a certain period of time our abilities and our health against those that are eating the king's meat, and whoever comes out on top We'll adjust accordingly. And the caretaker says, that's a deal. This whole thing is experimental. Let's see how this goes. And they eat pulse. Everybody else eats from the king's table. At the end of time, it is indi- it's clearly indicated that they're better. And so everybody now eats pulse. How many of you think they were popular kids in the banquet hall? So we're not getting any more meat? No. We all get pulse now. Everybody gets pulse because of those four. All right. No more wine, no, just water and pulse. Everything else is cleared away. But the king is still going to sit up at his table, and it's all going to be brought in for him. These guys are taking an incredible stand. They're not trying to be weird, get it. They're not trying to be strange. They are aware that they are strangers, and that they are pilgrims sojourning in a place that is ultimately not their home. But they are being coerced to think like the culture in which they are living. They are being pressured to worship like the culture that surrounds them. They are being pressed to live according to the culture in which they live. These are temptations they've never faced before. 
Brand new temptations, can they make it? And I note very clearly, if that mirrors the battle that we are engaged in, and we know that they are victorious, we then can grasp as students of the Bible that he outlines for us how we can stand against the tide. He communicates by how he lived, how we can be victorious. And the first thing I note is this, he never forgot who God was. He was always aware that the circumstances that they had were according to God's sovereign plan. And sometimes seeds of doubt are planted in our lives when we imagine, even for a moment, that God is no longer in control. But here, it is evident that he never took his eyes off of who God was. In chapter 2, there's an interesting story. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision and he wants somebody to declare unto him, to interpret to him what this vision is. He has magicians and he has wizards and he has sorcerers and and they cannot divine what this vision that he had was. But Daniel has his name mentioned and Daniel is assigned the task of telling Nebuchadnezzar about his vision. And this is a sobering and a serious moment because it is literally for his life. Now, what Daniel can do is he can make this decision. I can capitulate to Chaldean worship, and I can go to the same impotent gods that all of these others have gone to for clarity on this vision, or I can abide by my conviction and pray to the God of heaven and believe that he will answer. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he goes back with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, guys, we need to have a prayer meeting. I need to know the secret of Nebuchadnezzar's vision or it's not going to be good for me. And they all prayed together. And we read this in verse 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. And get this phrase. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now note that there is no phrase within scripture that is accidentally or incidentally there. But Daniel wants us to read that he blessed the God of heaven. In the midst of this pagan society, in the midst of the cultural tide, he never took his eyes off of who God was. He never faltered in his belief that he worshipped the true God of heaven. And he wants us to be aware of the fact that he never took his eyes off of that reality. But there's something else that I note hidden in the writing. Remember who you are. In verse 11 of chapter 1, and maybe your Bible is still open to there, you'll read that Daniel is speaking to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over. And then note what he writes. Daniel, Hananiah... Mishael and Azariah. In verse 19, the king is communing with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now you might say, what in the world are you helping us to see? I want you to note something. Both of those verses come after verse 7, where they were given Chaldean names. Yet Daniel, as he writes of his friends, is using their Hebrew names. That is a small nuance, but here is what it indicates to me. Even though they were dumped in the midst of Chaldean culture, they never forgot who they were. They never surrendered their personal identity to adopt the identity that the culture was trying to press on them. 
When Daniel spoke of himself and his Hebrew friends, he used their Hebrew names. Now, I happen to believe that he did not refuse to answer when his Babylonian name was used. In fact, we know that he'll even turn in this account, and when the three Hebrew children are cast into the fiery furnace, every kid who grows up in church knows this. It was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think it is important for us to be aware of the reality that we not only must remember who we are, children of the king, children of light, but we must also remember why we are here. In 1 John 4, 4, John wrote this, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Our conversation is in heaven. That's our citizenship. It's in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the secular society in which they were dropped, they refused to surrender their identity. Think for just a minute. Not only did they remember who they were, they also remembered why they were there. Do you comprehend that when Jesus, as I referenced earlier, prayed for us in what we would call the high priestly prayer, he didn't pray that we would be removed from this earth, but rather that we would be protected while we're here. Do you comprehend that we are not here to isolate ourselves from the world, but that we are here to impact the world as salt and as light? Do you comprehend that when we speak of separation, we speak more of separation unto God than we do separation away from the things of this world? We are sanctified. We are set apart. And some churches lose their effectiveness because they would rather defend some idiosyncratic tradition or some nuance that they have adopted more than impact the world in which they live. And that is why I say to maintain a dual identity requires a biblical balance. We aren't strange for the sake of strangeness. We aren't antiquated just to be old. The fact is we are here to make a difference and we must always remember who we are and why we are here. Reach somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches don't grow on accident. Churches grow with intention. When every individual remembers that they are a personal level missionary to get the gospel to those around them. They remembered who God was. They remembered who they were and why they were there. And they made a resolve to stand. In verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. I've already gone over this. But the fact is, he had to make a resolution. And it started so small. I will not defile myself with the king's meat. Again, this is not Daniel trying to stand out. This is not Daniel looking for advancement. This is not a kid with a chip on his shoulder. This is a man who is guided by his conviction. I cannot dishonor God by ingesting that food. I cannot dishonor God by imbibing that wine. I cannot capitulate on my convictions, which God honors. Now, we happen to have this thought process that if we'll take strong stands and we'll step out on our faith and we'll stem the cultural tide, everything will get easy. But that's not how it works. Jesus said this in Luke 16, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Okay, Daniel, I see the stand that you have taken at the king's banquet table. Are you ready for a real test? 
And in Daniel chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, we arrive at a passage in Scripture where jealousy is on the scene. The presidents and the princes that are around Daniel and the Hebrew children note that Daniel is excelling. And they don't like it. They note that Daniel is abiding by his convictions and they can't stand it. And so the Bible says in Daniel 6, 4, then the presidents and the princes sought They were searching for a way to accuse Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. And they say, we can't find any occasion to accuse this guy. Can you fathom being that employee? No matter where we look, no matter how much we scrutinize, there is no error, there is no fault. We've looked everywhere. There is no occasion to accuse this guy of any wrongdoing. Daniel is above the average. Daniel is guided by conviction. Now in verse 6, they hatch a plan. Nebuchadnezzar is prone to some ego problems. Nebuchadnezzar never had anybody tell him no. And the presidents and the princes, they are aware of the fact, no matter how much we scrutinize Daniel, we will never find a way to accuse this guy. He's a good dude. But we have a plan. And they go into Nebuchadnezzar, and they stand before Nebuchadnezzar, and in effect, here's what they say. Nebuchadnezzar, we've been working on something. Yes, what is it? We've decided to adopt a plan where we have a God of the month. And what we want to do is we want to launch this initiative with you, Nebuchadnezzar, being the God of the month. For 30 days, you're the God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar could have said, guys, that's a dumb idea. But Nebuchadnezzar's ego says, you know what? I've kind of been waiting for you guys to come in with that idea. That's a good one. And here's the deal, Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody can ask any other God but you anything. Nobody can worship any other God but you for 30 days Will you sign this petition? Sign it. I'm probably going to add a few things to it. They put it before Nebuchadnezzar. He signs it. And Nebuchadnezzar is the God of the month for the next 30 days. Now what they know is they have been looking desperately to accuse Daniel. Maybe some of it is revenge for having to eat pulse in the banquet hall years earlier. I don't know. But I do know this man is guided by conviction. And I want you to read with me one of the strongest verses that I read in all of Scripture. It's Daniel 6 and verse 10. And you'll note this. Now when Daniel, and get this, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Aforetime is a big way of saying before. Just like he always did, he kept on doing. Now you say, I know that's Daniel trying to stick it in the eye of those presidents and princes. Wrong. I know that's Daniel just being a rebellious young person with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Wrong. Daniel was aware of Scripture. When Solomon built the temple that had been birthed in the heart of his father, David, he completes construction on a magnificent building. And he is praying at the prayer of dedication. And one of the things that Solomon prays is he prays along these lines. And God, if ever we are taken captive as a people and we pray towards this place, end, in effect, the captivity and bring us home. 
Daniel has never forgotten who God was. He has always remembered who he was and why he was there. And Daniel has resolved to stand. And so now as a man guided by conviction in little things, he is being trusted to be guided by conviction in great big things. And he goes into his room and he opens the window and he prays toward Jerusalem with the intent that God will keep his word. Because Daniel believed that God was the true God. Now you say, maybe he didn't have to open his windows. Yeah, but he'd always opened his windows. And if he would have kept his windows closed this time, it would have indicated faithlessness. And Daniel is communicating, I don't know what comes next, but I will take on what comes next. Come what may, I'm going to do what I believe is right to do. It's just like the Hebrew children who were cast into the fiery furnace who said to Nebuchadnezzar, listen, our God can deliver us, but if he chooses not to, we're still not going to give in to your wishes. We're still not going to worship your idol. We're willing to carry our cross to the full extent all the way to death. Now, you maybe know the Bible story. For punishment, breaking the king's law, Daniel is cast into the lion's den. And in the lion's den, miraculously, Daniel is visited by some company and the mouths of the lions are silenced. And when the king comes in the morning looking for Daniel, he's alive. And Daniel gets to live that moment, which is some sadistic joy where He's freed from the lion's den and those who accused him and threw him in there are cast into the lion's den and he gets to hear their bones crunched in the mouths of the lion and hear them scream out loud in pain. And you say, you're a little twisted, little, but there's got to be some payoff for living right, right? And what it does is it tells me this. We think if I take a stand here and I don't eat the king's meat, battle won. Life gets easier. Faith rewarded. Wrong. Now the pressure is greater and they're going to say to you, I'll take your life if you keep praying to your God. And Daniel says, bring it on. Pressure's greater. He's cast into the lion's den and God comes through again. We must get it out of our minds that steps of faith are always rewarded with paths of ease. Because what Daniel teaches us is this. It takes a new resolve and it takes new strength to stand against a new temptation. Thank God every morning his mercies are new. But be aware that every morning so is temptation. And when Joshua took his stand in Joshua 24, he said, choose you this day. Indicating to us that you must choose every day. A victorious general, a hundred years old, is saying, I still must make the choice to serve God. I still must make the choice to stand. The decision that you made back at the banquet table is not good enough for the lion's den. The reality is, every day you will deal with an onslaught of pressure from this culture. And I want you to grasp what I mean when I say culture. This cosmos is the Greek word. This world system, which is ruled, according to the Bible, by the prince and the power of this air, the devil himself. Which indicates the bent of all society. The bent of all humanity is towards sin. Everything that we encounter that is not the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ is tipping us away from God himself. And the reality is such that every day we are inundated with this world, 
this culture, we are under duress to think like they think, to worship like they worship, and to live like they live. And we must, in an unbending way, navigate our way to our eternal home as pilgrims and sojourners. How? Simply remember who God is. Daniel had every reason to doubt that God that he grew up worshiping was actually God, but he never caved in. He kept his eyes on who God was. He never forgot who he was, a children of light in a dark world. He was salt in the midst of a corrupting and decaying society. He never forgot why he was there. It was his responsibility to pray toward the temple in Jerusalem, to bring this captivity to conclusion, to live his life exercising faith in God. And he always had a new resolve to stand. And so I say to you, this is an ancient passage of Scripture, but it's timeless. It's relevant because this battle mirrors ours. And if you have taken your eyes off of who God is, if you have forgotten who you are and why you are here, and if you have forgotten, if you have neglected to wake up every day and choose again with new resolve and new strength to stand against new temptations, failure's not too far away. And you know what I think this communicates to me? Pretense is not allowed. Daniel, there's no pretense here. Daniel was as real a person as you could ever meet. Because I'm going to be honest with you. I believe if you put me in the banquet hall and I was already in bondage and that's what they put in front of me, I'm so dumb and I'm so scared, I just eat what you put in front of me because I don't want trouble. You tell me for 30 days you can't pray to God, I think perhaps I'm strong enough to pray, but I probably would keep the windows shut. I I am not looking for any lion's dens. And I think sometimes we act a little bigger than we are. And I hear people say stuff like, you know what, I'll punch the devil right in the nose. Mm. I doubt that Lucifer himself is really concerned with my walk. But I do know I'm in a battle. I'm not looking for lion's dens. I'm not looking for giants in a valley. I'm not looking for fiery furnaces. But I know this, if you walk the path of faith and you stand against the cultural tide, the odds are some of those moments are in your future and mine. Can we make it? Yes. If we just apply the outline for victory to stand against the cultural tide. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.